Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Thank you for that song, Brother Luigi. Tell you what, it's easy to amen it on a Sunday morning. But when he starts asking for things like your time, your money, your comforts, it's a whole other issue. So remember, you amen it. I owe him everything. Don't forget it, you do. Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's all stand together when you get there. And uh, we're going to start reading in verse number 16. The Bible says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore I poured out my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land, and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. According to their way, and according to their doings, I judged them. Verse 20, And when they had entered unto the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. And when they said unto them, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes." For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean the water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, shall, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the corn and will increase it, and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field, that ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations." Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you, be ashamed, and be it confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and in the waste shall be, and the waste shall be builded. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land was desolate, is become like the garden of Eden." And the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left around about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock as a holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men and they shall know that I am the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Given the current war that's taking place with Israel and Hamas, I thought that this would be a good place to launch into the message this morning. This isn't the message. I'm not 
going to preach this entire text, but I just thought it would be a good place to start. I know there's a lot of confusion uh, when it comes to uh, the nation of Israel and how it rela- uh, relates to their land and to, uh, the Pal- to Palestine. And I know that uh, Dr. Childs is going to be speaking about that this evening and, and just giving us a biblical worldview when it comes to that. And uh, I understand that the Middle East and the politics of that region are quite complex, but uh, when it comes to the issue of where we're to stand biblically, it's really quite simple. And biblically, the position that we're to take as Christians is that the land that Israel currently possesses, as well as Gaza, and really much more, belongs to Israel. If you go back and you look in Genesis 15, you see God made a covenant with Abraham and he made uh, a promise to him. And part of that promise includes land and, and he lays out the borders of that promised land. Again, in Joshua chapter 15 and verse 47, uh, he's recounting uh, the land and its division. And he specifically says uh, that there's an area that was given to the tribe of Judah. Verse 47, Ashdod with her towns and villages, Gaza with her towns and her villages, Unto the river of Egypt and the great sea and the border thereof. And so, biblically, God made a covenant with Abraham. And with that covenant came land, came nation, came a blessing. And that covenant uh, came through the lineage of Abraham to his son Isaac, to his son Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and the nation that bears his name. And so, though Israel, at the time of this writing, all of what we just read is prophetical, Uh, Though at this time they're scattered, he says, uh, God tells Ezekiel that he's going to restore Israel to their land. He's going to bring them back uh, to the land that he had promised to Abraham. And so uh, when it comes to how are we to to stand on this and what's our position to be relating to uh, that land is that if this is God's intention, then anyone who's opposed to Israel inhabiting the land you're really putting yourself against God's intentions. And guess what? You're not going to win. You're opposing the purpose and plans of God. And so what should our response uh, be given the current state of what's taking place in Israel? Well, we should support Israel. Genesis 12 and verse 3, God, God made it very clear. He said, I will bless them that bless thee, and I'll curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so we should support Israel. Um, not only that, we should pray for Israel. Uh, Psalm 122 and verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. And so the events that are unfolding uh, today before our very eyes in the Middle East, uh, for us as believers, it shouldn't bring fear. Uh, We shouldn't be afraid of what's happening. Uh, Really, it should bring anticipation. It should remind us the fact that the Lord's return is soon. uh, That He's coming soon. His return is imminent. Uh, And with it, it should bring a sense of urgency. Uh, Jesus, he said in John 9 and verse 4, I, wor- I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And so the events that are unfolding in the Middle East, the wars, the rumors of wars, the alliances that are forming, the earthquakes that are taking place, all of it points to the soon return of Christ. And that means that if that's the case, we've got to get busy doing the work that he's called us to do. And so that's not the message for this morning, uh, but this passage does relate to what we're talking about. Again, here in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, he's writing to Israel and he's reminding them of the fact that he's going to restore them to their land. And it's significant because he tells them why it is he's going to do this thing. If you look in verse 22 and 23, and again, he restates it in other places, but verse 22 and 23 says, Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, and here's the key, I do this not for your sakes, he says, 
O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went, he says, and I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. He says, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. And even the very last verse, verse 38, he says, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And really this goes right along with our Sunday school lesson this morning, is that God works in our life, not so that we receive the glory, but so that he is glorified, so that people can see him at work. And so why was it that God is going to restore Israel to their promised land? Why is he going to fulfill this covenant that he made with Abraham? Well, he says, for his glory, for his namesake. You know, we tend to lose sight of the fact that the events that happen in this world and the things that unfold in our life, they're not about us. They have nothing to do uh, with us. They have nothing to do with our advancement and making a name for ourselves. No, God is much bigger than that. The things that happen in our life, they're not about us. They're, they're all a part of God's master plan. They're all a part of God orchestrating events and, and unfolding piece by piece circumstances that will culminate with one day every knee bowing and worshiping Him. That's what it's all about. Every event that's happening, everything that's taking place is leading us to a point where God's name is going to be known, where God is going to be worshipped, where God is going to be magnified. Have you ever noticed that we live in a very narcissistic society? Anybody figure that out yet? Okay, just making sure you're, you're paying attention. But people are completely consumed with themselves. I mean, it's incredible. We're consumed with self-image, our self-worth, self-care. We take selfies, uh, right? You know, these are all the buzzwords of our day. We're, we're encouraged to discover ourselves, right? Like, there's something worth finding out. Um, we spend hours consumed with the things that are happening in our life. And then we use social media to tell other people who don't really care about what we ate for breakfast and what we're wearing and the, the places that we went. We tend to think pretty highly of ourselves. We tend to focus uh, on ourselves. But sadly, what's happened is this self-centered culture that we live in has carried over into the church. It's carried over into our theology. And when you combine that self-centeredness, that narcissistic society that we live in with the consumer mentality that most people have and that the customer is always right and it's all about what I want and, and what I need, uh, we see that it's produced devastating results when it comes to American Christianity. Our, America, our Americanized version of Christianity has resulted in a very self-centered version of Christianity where we've become the object of our faith. Christianity has become about us instead of being about Christ. And I want to remind us this morning that Christianity is not about you. There's something much bigger at stake than your name. There's something much greater at stake than your image and your feelings and your comforts. And it's God's glory. God's name is at stake. God's glory is at stake. Biblical Christianity, it's not self-centered. It's Christ-centered. And it recognizes the gospel as a means to make the glory of God known among the nations. And that's what I want to really focus on this morning is the gospel and the glory of God. And I only have two points this morning, so I kept it real short. It's not, maybe it won't be real short, I'm not making any promises, but I've got two points. 
And I want to look at this morning two channels in our lives through which God's glory, or through which God is glorified. Two channels in our life through which God can be glorified. And there's certainly many more than this, but I just felt led to focus on these two this morning. And the first thing I wrote down, the first point is this, is that He saves us for His glory. He saves us for His glory. You know, the Bible is a narrative. It's, a, it's, it's God's redemption plan for His people. We see from Genesis to Revelation, God uh, working and making a way for man to be restored back into fellowship with God. And I want to consider this before we even dive into this is why did God make man in the first place? Why did God make us in the first place? God didn't need us. God is all powerful. God's all sufficient. There's certainly no need that, that he had remaining. And yet he still created us. And so why make man? I don't want to try to pretend like I know God's motives or even oversimplify them, but I think when we go through Scripture, we can get a pretty clear idea of why God made man. What are the purposes for doing so? And I just wrote down there's a twofold purpose in God creating man, and we're going to see this over and over again this morning, but the twofold purpose is this. He made man to enjoy his grace and to extend his glory, to enjoy his grace and expand his glory. We were created to enjoy God's grace. You think about the fact that God, when he created man, he placed him in this beautiful garden. He met all of his needs so that man could experience and enjoy God's fellowship and God's grace. Not only that, but he created man. Of all of his creation, man was the only creation that it says bears the image of God. He created man in, the, in his own image. And then he commanded man who was made in his image to multiply, to inhabit the earth. And so everywhere that man would go, they would take the image of God with them, therefore expanding his glory. And so we can see this twofold purpose of enjoying his grace and expanding his glory over and over again throughout Scripture. I think about Abraham in Genesis 12. We've already referenced it, the, the, the covenant that he made with Abraham. He says in Genesis 12 and verse 2, And I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. What's he doing? He's, he's telling Abraham, I want you to experience my grace. You don't deserve this. There's nothing inherently special about you, but I'm choosing you to show my grace, to experience my grace. But then, uh, not only that, he connects his, this idea of him demonstrating his grace to Abraham to an even greater purpose. In verse 3, he says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. What's he doing? God was blessing Abraham, not for Abraham's sake, but so that through Abraham, he could be the conduit of God's blessings to other nations. God wanted Abraham to enjoy his grace and to extend his glory. We see this idea again in Exodus. As God is redeeming his people from slavery and bondage out of Egypt, he leads them to the edge of the Red Sea. And there they are, they're hedged in, the Red Sea before them, the Egyptian army uh, behind them. It seems like a very dire circumstance. And yet, in Exodus 14, we read in verse uh, 17 and 18, And behold, he says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, and upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. What was he doing? God wanted Israel to enjoy his grace, to experience miracle 
after a miracle as God provided and made a way to deliver them from the Egyptians. He miraculously then parts the water. They walk through on dry land and he causes the waters to destroy the Egyptian army. Why? So he could expand his glory. He wanted them to experience his grace to then expand his glory. All nations would know that the Lord delivers his people. I think about here in Ezekiel, we just read it. We see a a promise to one day restore Israel to their land. And in the context there, Ezekiel's recounting how they've sinned. They've profaned his name. Uh, they've, They've not been the testimony that they were supposed to be. And yet, nevertheless, God is going to restore them. Why? He's going to show them grace. He's going to show grace to them. He was going to bless them. He was going to restore what he had promised to Abraham. And he says, not for their sakes, but so that he would get the glory from it. So that all the other nations would know that the Lord did this. And then I think about in Revelation. John, he gives us a glimpse into heaven. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, we read, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all the nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. In in that verse, we see God's twofold uh, purpose fulfilled. There we see uh, those who have experienced God's grace are gathered in one place, glorifying Him worshiping Him. That's the whole purpose. And so His grace has been expanded there at that point to all nations, it says, all kindreds, all peoples, all tongues. And so over and over again, we see this twofold purpose at work in Scripture where God is blessing His people so that uh, they can experience extravagant grace and then expand His glory to all people of the earth. And so then how does this purpose, this twofold purpose then fit into our salvation. You know, I'm afraid that in our Americanized version of Christianity, we have the tendency to disconnect God's grace from God's glory. There's a disconnect there. We love hearing about God's grace. We love singing songs about God's grace. We've got conferences about God's grace. We write books about God's grace. We love listening to sermons and songs, all centered on God's grace. And listen, while God's grace is certainly worthy of our attention, when you disconnect it from God's glory, the result is a self-centered Christianity. Think about it. If you were to ask, I believe, the average Christian, what is the message of Christianity? I think you'd probably get an answer somewhat along the lines of, well, the message of Christianity is that God loves me. Maybe even God loves me so much he sent Jesus to die for me. And all of that sounds good, and that's true. Except for it's only half the message. See, if we stop there, we're left with a self-centered version of Christianity. Because if God loves me, and Jesus died for me, then we become the object of our faith. It's about me. That means that when I look for a church, I look for music that best fits me. And when I look for programs, I look for those that best cater to me and to my family. And when I make plans, about, I think about what works best for my life. And when I think about the house that I will live in and the car that I will drive and the clothes that I wear and the way that I live and the standards that I have, I'm going to choose what's best for me. Because that's what I've created a version of Christianity to do, is to be all about me. 
And sadly, that's the version that largely prevails in our culture, but that's not biblical Christianity. See, the message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period. It's the message is God loves me so that I might make Him, His ways, His salvation, His glory, His greatness known among all nations. And in that version of Christianity, God is the object of our faith. God is what our faith is centered around. We're not the end of the gospel. God is. And see, salvation, it's not about us. He didn't save us for our sake. He saved us for the sake of His holy name. We've received His grace so that His name will be proclaimed in all nations. It might come as a shock to you, but you are not the center of the universe. God is. Everything He does revolves around Him. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love you deeply. God has a great love for His people. He has a great love for His creation, but His love isn't centered on those people. It's centered on His holiness. It's centered on His goodness. It's centered on His grace. It's centered on His glory. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, we see Paul, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's really declaring some great truths as it relates to our salvation. Look at verse 3, he says, blessed be, the Lord, uh, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom also you trusted after that you were heard with the, uh, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you, tr- you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. I'm not going to dissect all that. Well, that's a lot of stuff. And we read that and we read about the fact that we're adopted, that he's made us accepted in the beloved, that he's made known the mystery of his will, that you know, all that, that entails, that aspect of salvation. We say amen to that. But notice some of the, the conclusions he makes as he's going through that. He says in verse number six, why does God save us? Well, uh, he says, um, Uh, Sorry, in verse number six, he says, uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Look at Ephesians chapter one and verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, he says. Ephesians chapter one and verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Are you catching the, the connection there, the trend there? See, the apostle Paul, he's delivering some great doctrinal truth as it relates to our salvation. And over and over again, he's declaring that the reason for saving us is that we should be to the praise of his glory. What's he saying? He's saying your salvation is not about you. 
It's not about us. It's about God being glorified in you. Hey, Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that you could go to heaven. He didn't pay the price for your sins so you could sleep better at night knowing your sins were forgiven. He didn't redeem you so you could live for yourself. He redeemed you and he saved you so that you could expand his glory. That you would make, uh, that you would be to the praise of his glory. And really, this is a foundational truth. We've got to understand that because if you disconnect God's grace from God's glory, you're going to be left with an unbiblical, self-saturated Christianity that misses the whole point of God's grace. God doesn't want you to just enjoy it and keep it to yourself. He wants you to share it with others. God creates, he blesses, he saves us for a radically global purpose. And that is that we would make known his glory to the nations. The gospel, the good news, it's not just for you. It's for the entire world. And so we see salvation, it's a channel for his glory. And here's my second point, and that is that he sends us for his glory. He sends us for his glory. I said earlier that one of the dangers of our version of Christianity is that we've disconnected the grace of God from the glory of God. Our salvation, it becomes about us. The gospel becomes about us. And as a result, we become calloused to the fact that God commands us to take the gospel into all the world. That we're to expand his glory by taking the message of the gospel to others. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, we know this. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so when we disconnect the grace of God from the glory of God, you know what we do? We start creating these spiritual smoke screens to excuse us from doing what God has commanded us to do so that we can enjoy the comforts that we have. Whether it's intentional or not, we excuse ourselves from the global purposes of the gospel. You think about the fact that we've relegated the Great Commission to a great calling. God commands us to go. He doesn't call us to go. He commands us. And we say things like, well, I'm just not called. Everybody's not called to foreign missions. Or more specifically, I'm not called to foreign missions. And we look at foreign missions like it's some sort of optional program for the church. That somehow it's reserved for the faithful few who have been called. We compartmentalize missions to being for only a select set of Christians who are passionate about it. And meanwhile, the rest of us, we're content to sit back and we'll watch the slideshows and we'll throw a couple dollars in the offering plate. But God's not called us to do that missions thing. God's not called us to, to reach the world. That's, that's for the professionals. Well, maybe I'm missing it, and Dr. Charles can show me later, but I don't know where in the Bible that missions is ever identified as an optional program. We just read two passages where Jesus, he didn't call us to go to the nations. He commanded us to go to all nations. And by disconnecting God's glory uh, from God's grace, 
we've reduced the command to a calling for only a, a few that receive it. It's interesting that we don't do this with the other commands of Jesus. Did you ever notice that? We look at Matthew chapter 28 and, and we say, well, that means other people. But commands like Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Well, that one's for me. I'm, 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 not called, I'm called to get rest, <laughs> right? We take promises like Acts 1 and verse 8 where he, he promises he's going to make us witnesses for him. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, we take promises like that and think, well, that's got to be for someone else. But when it comes to promises like John 10 and 10, I'm come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Oh, yeah, that one's definitely for me. See, we choose to send off other people to carry out the gospel while the rest of us just sit back because we're not called to that. Romans chapter 1. Turn over there. Romans chapter 1. Verse 14, Paul says this. He says, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel for, to you that are at Rome also. You know, we typically think about when it comes to this idea of being a debtor that, uh, you know, we think of it in the sense of owing someone money that we've borrowed. Right? I've taken out a loan and so now I'm a debtor to the person who gave me that money. But I want you to think about this aspect of being a debtor, because that's the traditional part. But imagine I were to give you something money-wise and say, hey, I want you to take this money and I want you to give it to someone else. In doing so, I've now made you a debtor to that person. You're a debtor to deliver that money to the person that I've given it to you. And that's the sense in which Paul is saying, I'm a debtor. I've been given something great. I've been given the gospel. I've been given a command to go and to take that gospel to all the world. I'm a debtor to everyone, to, to the, to the uh, Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. And so in that context, you're a debtor to the one to whom uh, th that was given. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying we've been given the gospel. We've been commissioned to give the gospel to the entire world. Someone said this. They said every saved person on this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person on this side of hell. And yet we've excused ourselves from the weight and the responsibility of reaching a lost and dying world by, by relegating the Great Commission to a calling. Others don't feel they need to go to all nations because they have a heart for the needs here. They might say things like, God's given me a heart for the United States. Or God's given me a heart for this specific area. And those statements sound spiritual, but when you probe a little deeper, sometimes they seem a little bit more like excuses. You know, a recent study found that only 40% of self-identified evangelical Christians have had a conversation with someone about their faith in the last six months. My point is that most Christians rarely share the gospel. We're not really concerned with the spiritual needs around us, because if we were, we'd be a whole lot more passionate and a whole lot more consistent when it came to sharing the gospel. But even if we were consistently sharing the gospel and reaching the people here, we'd still be overlooking a foundational truth, and that is that God's heart is not just limited to the United States. God's heart is for the whole world. 
And so if we say that we have a heart for the United States, congratulations, you only have 4% of the heart of God. Because God's heart is for the whole world. And I'm not saying there aren't needs where we live, but the Great Commission, it's not an either-or command. It's not, it's either for the United States or it's for the entire world. The Great Commission doesn't require that we choose between the United States and the world. Ultimately, we should be concerned with how can we reach all nations? You know, as we sit here in this auditorium this morning, there are 8 billion people in the world. And it's estimated that approximately 386 million evangelical Christians are in the world. That means that there are over 7 billion people on this planet who, if the gospel is true, they're separated from God and their sin, and assuming nothing changes, they're going to die and go to hell. Do you know that 3 billion of that 7 billion people in the world are considered unreached with the gospel? That means they have little to no chance of ever hearing about Jesus, his sacrifice, and his free gift of salvation. Three billion people. Guess what? Most of them live outside the United States. God has given us His grace to extend His glory. Not just here, but around the world. It's not here or there, but it's here and there. You know, I think sometimes we forget the fact that there's no plan B when it comes to taking the gospel to all nations. There's not. There's this idea in our world that's becoming more and more prevalent today, and that's the idea of universalism. It's the idea that all religions are fundamentally the same. That you may have heard it explained this way, that all roads lead to heaven. You ever heard someone say that? Well, we reject that idea, right? We preach verses like John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so intellectually, we reject universalism, but practically, we live like universalists. We claim Christ is necessary for salvation. We claim He's the only way. And yet we live our Christianity in silence, as if people around the world are going to be okay without Christ. Again, there are three billion unreached people. And so if people will go to, hell, go to heaven simply because they're religious, well, then there's no urgency. But if they're not going to heaven because they never hear of Christ, then there's an indescribable urgency for all of us to reach them. Flip over to Romans chapter 10. You're there in Romans 1. Flip over to Romans 10. We know this, this verse, but I thought it would be a good passage here to look at. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 13. He says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Paul's laying out a, pro a progression for how someone comes to faith. And you see it clearly if you start at the end and work your way back. He says God sends servants, verse 15. His servants preach. People hear. Hearers believe. Believers call upon Christ. And those that call upon Christ are saved. That's God's plan. And it's really quite simple. There's only one place, though, where that progression can break down. If you look at God's plan, there's only one place where it can fail. And that's when His servants don't go. See, God's servants are the plan of God. We are the plan of God. There's no plan B. There's not one record in the Bible where the gospel advances to the lost apart from a human agent. 
There's not one place. In Matthew chapter 9, we find Jesus' only prayer request. He says in verse 37 and verse 38, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. You know, you read that, and I don't know about you, but have you ever thought, why would Jesus look at all the multitudes, see the great needs, and then tell his disciples, pray for yourself. <laughs> pray that laborers would go. I, I, I would have thought Jesus would look at the multitudes, he'd see the great needs, and he'd say, all right, now John, I want you to go over here and help these, and Peter, I want you to go down here and help these, and, and start meeting the needs. But instead, he's praying for laborers. He's praying for them. Why wouldn't, he, why wouldn't he pray for the needy? They're the ones that have the needs. But instead, he tells his disciples to pray for laborers. You see, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he wasn't concerned that the multitudes wouldn't come to the Father. His concern was that his followers wouldn't go to the multitudes. How is it that we can live in a world that has instant communication? We can travel insanely fast we have unlimited information at our fingertips, and yet we still have three billion people who have never heard the gospel. I'll tell you why. It's because we're not praying. We're not going. When's the last time you prayed for laborers? When's the last time you prayed for the unreached people groups? When's the last time you asked the Lord to let you reach those people groups? Or do we just not want to be inconvenienced with something like that? See, most of us, we have our dreams and our goals of what we want for our lives or even for our children. And, and you think about those dreams. You know, imagine a student who's told all their life, you know, if you work hard in school, you'll get accepted into college and you can earn a degree and you can build a career and be successful. And so they work hard, they press toward that goal. Imagine another person, they're gifted in business, they've reached their goal, they've put in long hours, they've worked harder than everyone else, they've persevered through difficult days at the office, and they've made it to the top, and they both now live in comfortable suburban homes, they have, uh, they have their spouse, their children, they've got all their needs met, and, and then comes retirement. Their hard work is over, their options abound, they, they could either settle into a quiet home, they could travel and see the rest of the country, they could renovate their house, they could buy that fishing boat, they could take up golf, uh, they could, you know, they, they have pleasures that are, are now, they're now able to enjoy because of the result of all of their years of toil and labor they put in. Now ask yourself, is that all we were created to do? Is that it? Is that all there is in this life? Working hard, getting a good job, saving up retirement, enjoying your old age. That's all, that's all there is to life? There's got to be more. And there is. Perhaps God has created us for a radically different purpose. Perhaps he's created us for a more global purpose in our life. One that involves extending his glory, taking the gospel to the nations. What if we were to set aside our gospelist dreams and get a vision for how God could use us to impact the world for his glory? What if those people who have experienced and enjoyed the grace of God in their life became totally consumed with expanding God's glory and, and, and taking the gospel and telling others about the grace that was extended to them? What if those people joined together in communities of faith called a church that were surrendered to that same purpose of 
making the gospel known to all nations. Maybe, just maybe, we would see the Great Commission accomplished. After all, that's Jesus' plan. You know, I hear people talk all the time about they're praying what the will of God is for their life. You know, do I pursue this career? Do I pursue that career? Do I buy this car? Do I buy that car? Do I go to this school? Do I go to that school? And I'm not trying to minimize seeking the Lord's will and all of those things. I think that's important. But it doesn't make much sense to ask, God, what do you want me to do when there are billions of people who have never heard the gospel? I'll tell you what God wants you to do. He wants you to give your lives urgently to making the gospel and the glory of God known among all people, particularly those who've never heard. You don't have to sit and wait for some tingly feeling before you do what you've already been commanded to do. And so the real question is not, God, what do you want me to do? The real question is, are you willing to give up your comfort, your possessions, your safety, your security, your life to make the gospel and the glory of God known? Think about the missionaries that were just here last Sunday. CEO, had a nice house, had the money, and yet left it all to go to the mission field. Why? Because they realized there's something greater to live for. There's something greater than the American dream. Jim Elliott famously said, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, ultimate satisfaction is found in not in making much of ourselves, it's found in making much of Jesus. See, God is glorified when people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation hear and believe the gospel. And we need to labor to that end. Let's all stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.